Welcome, everybody, to the third episode of the HSF Corporate Crime and Investigations podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing data issues in investigations. Uh, data issues pose increasingly complex challenges for those involved in investigations. The data landscape is ever-changing. There are ever-increasing amounts of and uh, amounts of and types of data that organizations have to grapple with. The ways in which we communicate is continually evolving, and there are increasingly strict data laws that organizations need to navigate when approaching investigations. And the ways in which we collect and review data is also evolving. Forensic technology, data review platforms, and AI are all now available to help with reviews. How do we best use these technologies to focus investigations? And what innovations can we expect to see in the next few years? To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by Miriam Everett, our Global Head of Data and Privacy, Steph Barrett, the Head of um, HSF eDiscovery and Legal Technology, and Ali Grodsky, an associate in our London Corporate Crime and Investigations team. Welcome, everybody. Um, Ali, starting with you, um, if we're working on an internal cross-border investigation, the client wants us to collect and review data as part of that review, what are the types of legal issues that we should be considering? Well, may I just begin by saying that data is one of my favorite topics, although I know that that's not always the case for all um, investigations lawyers. Um, but coming to your question, so in terms of legal issues or potential headaches that you need to consider early on, um, certainly data protection um, issues should be at the forefront of your thinking. So what's the legal basis of processing data in this context? What safeguards will you have in place to protect data where it's particularly where it's shared with a third party? So that may be um, a law firm to assist you with the investigation or in due course, a regulator. Um, similarly, you've got privacy considerations, um, also a potential duty of confidentiality um, in relation to your employees. Um, You've also got, depending on the sector you operate in, uh, banking confidentiality um, considerations in the UK. Um, and there might also be other local laws to contend with. So state secrecy laws, for example. And I know, Rob, you've, you've had to contend with those before on many investigations. Yeah, and uh, it, it, particularly in, in cross-border investigations um, where you've got, for example, uh, uh, an investigation going on by the US government and, and the wrongdoing is in different um, countries across the world. Uh, we, we've dealt with situations where um, the Department of Justice has issued subpoenas to the client and we've had to consider the, um, the, the issues that are raised by uh, in, in several different countries. And um, China is one very interesting example of that where um, there are very strict, strict date, um, state secret um, rules um, with very broad definitions of state secrets. And so we've had to navigate um, how to, uh, on the one hand, um, comply with uh, the subpoena in the US, but on the other hand, do that in a way that doesn't breach local law. 
Um, and there are lots of different uh, uh, types of laws that, that you, you need to be aware of um, when dealing with in different countries. Singapore, for example, has very, uh, very strict banking secrecy laws. So trying to get um, uh, any uh, banking related information from Singapore is, is, is very tricky as well. Um, so all of these issues need to be considered um, when, uh, when approaching um, cross-border investigations. Ali, what could you get one of the first things you need to consider in investigations is um, preservation of data, right? And I think um, it's it's something that everyone's anxious about at the beginning that they don't want uh, the potentially relevant evidence uh, to disappear. Um, what tips do you have? Practical tips you have for for um, organizations that are looking to preserve data at the beginning of this sort of process? I think one of the first things to consider is what your data sources are. So whether it's a combination of email as well as um, other types of messaging communications that employees might use. And then it's secondly, it, it's the balancing act really of um, preserving confidentiality, particularly at those um, at the early stage of an investigation where you want to, you know, perhaps in the context of a whistleblowing um, uh, investigation, you know, you have to do a bit of digging to really understand the issue and scope your own investigation. And so you don't necessarily in those circumstances want to alert too many people to the fact of the investigation. So it's I don't think there's a one size fits all approach, but sometimes the best thing to do is to see what um, kind of present preservation steps you can take behind the scenes. So implementing legal holds in relation to people's inboxes. And then once you've um, got a little bit of info, um, then potentially sending out notices to your employees and um, getting things underway. But it it just will always depend on the sensitivity of the investigation, really. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and also, what about mobile phones? Because often these days, um, the most compelling evidence is on um, WhatsApp chat or uh, or, or um, instant messaging. Um, what, how, do, how should companies be uh, approaching preservation of mobile phone data at the beginning of an investigation? Well, that's a much tougher one to do um, covertly, and it will probably depend on how your systems have been set up in the first place to the extent that there are any kind of backups that are automatically made um, uh, in relation to um, employee devices. But I absolutely agree. It's something that shouldn't be forgotten because the quality of your investigation is entirely dependent on it's entirely dependent on the, the quality of the evidence. So there's no point, you know, reviewing 20,000 emails when actually the employee's most important conversations were taking place on WhatsApp and they've deleted all of their messages before you've even collected them. Great. And Miriam, this, I think, leads us nicely onto uh, data privacy. Um, WhatsApp's obviously right at the heart of that these days in terms of uh, uh, raising those kind of issues. But before we sort of come on to talk about that specifically, um, could you give us um, a sort of an overview of the types of data privacy issues that we should be considering when we're conducting, say, an internal investigation? Yeah, of course. Um, happy to do so. I, I guess what we have in an internal investigation context is an inherent tension between the investigation and the objectives of the investigation on the one hand, 
and then sort of twofold on the other side, GDPR rights and obligations, so data protection rights and obligations. And when I say GDPR, I'm using shorthand. I mean both the EU version and obviously the UK version now that we in the UK are no longer in Europe. Um, so you've got that on the one, on the one hand on one side of the fence and then also sort of personal expectations of privacy as well, which I think is a slightly different point, but one that is nonetheless very valid, particularly when it comes to things like WhatsApp chats, where people's expectations of privacy might be higher than in relation to their work emails. Um, so, yeah, so I guess the, the GDPR point is, you know, data protection law doesn't say no to anything. It doesn't say you can't do investigations. But what it does is it puts safeguards in place or rather it requires organizations to put safeguards in place around personal data that might form a part of that investigation. So it's not, contrary to popular belief, it's not that GDPR says no, uh, it's that GDPR says you need to think about how you're doing this and make sure that you are doing it in the right way in order to be able to, um, you know, tick that compliance box as well. And Miriam, uh, again, a lot of people tend to think that GDPR is all about consent and that therefore you have to get the consent of an employee to review their their data uh, in the part uh, during an in internal investigation. Is that right? It's, it's a really good question. And I think my answer, my short answer to that would be no, actually, don't get consent because consent is difficult in a GDPR context. But just to sort of take a step back and give a bit more context to that answer, I'd say you know, there are obviously lots of obligations in the GDPR, but two of the key ones in this context are that an organisation must have a lawful basis for anything it does with personal data. And the second limb is that it must be transparent. And just to sort of dwell on those briefly, each of those briefly, the lawful basis, the GDPR, as you probably know, sets out an exhaustive list of conditions. And you basically have to satisfy one of those conditions in relation to everything that you do. And as I say, it's an exhaustive list of, I think it's six. Um, consent is one of them. And in the good old pre-GDPR days, consent is the one that was most often relied upon because you could rely on implied consent. It didn't have to be explicit. Um, and what GDPR did, one of the key things it did was it really overhauled that consent system. Um, and it really raised the sort of standard for consent under GDPR so that you can't rely on implied consent now. There has to be, you know, there are various sort of aspects to the consent that have to be there in order for it to be a valid consent. And a key one in this context um, relates to the fact that consent has to be freely given. And those are the words used in the legislation. But basically, all the guidance and the interpretation of that in the GDPR context, context suggests that consent is very rarely appropriate in an employment context because of the inherent imbalance of power between employer and employee. So if your employer is asking you, are you happy that we do this? Do you actually, is your consent freely given? Do you actually have a choice or do you have to say yes because it's your employer asking? And that you can imagine in an investigation context is probably even more the case. And so Consent is probably not the lawful basis that I would recommend relying on. And instead, we need to look at the other ones in the GDPR. And I would say that there is a sort of legal obligation lawful basis. So um, where you're under a legal obligation to do something that might sometimes be the case. 
you know, if, if in the context of, you know, you're being told by a regulator that they need specific information. Mm. In most circumstances in investigations, though, that one's probably still not, it's not going to get you there. And so the, the one that's most often relied upon is the so-called legitimate interests test. And that's where you you have to do a balancing test between the legitimate interest of the organisation in carrying out the investigation and balance that against the rights and freedoms of the individual whose personal data is being looked at. Um, so it's it's a tricky one because it's not a binary test, um, but I think that's nonetheless the one that is most often relied upon in an investigations context as opposed to consent. And looking looking at that particular gateway is that is that a sort of um a panacea can we just rely on that every time we do an investigation uh, do you have any sort of practical tips for to to reduce risk when conducting investigations relying on that gateway yeah i mean i would say it's it's not a yeah it's not a panacea um, and I'm not saying this just as an external counsel data protection lawyer who's looking to drum up business, um, but it really does have to be thought about. And I would say key to that thinking is having the document trail as well. So, for example, uh, you know, data protection impact assessments, legitimate interests assessments, showing that you have done the thinking and that you have put in place ways in which to mitigate potential data protection risk to the individuals. So interestingly, one thing that we're starting to see more of, and not just in the context of investigations, but I have seen it in that context as well, is, you know, organizations appointing almost an independent third party to do an initial review of um, messages, communications, everything, documents, in order to filter out the kind of irrelevant personal data in the context that obviously I think all of us know that we're supposed to use our work email for work purposes. And yet, if you go into any of our inboxes, I'm sure there will be the odd personal email sent from a work address, which is, you know, usually completely irrelevant to investigations, but also can often be considered sensitive, you know, stuff about your kids' schools and, you know, that kind of thing, which you know, we've, we've seen instances or starting to see more instances where actually independent third parties, like another law firm, for example, does an initial churn through everything to say, OK, this is the stuff that's kind of quote unquote relevant and taking out that irrelevant personal information. And I'm deliberately saying personal information rather than personal data, um, but just sort of taking out that stuff. So, yeah, there are ways in which that sort of data protection risks can be minimized but i would say vital to all of that is having the document trail so that you can show that you've thought about it and i always like to say you know if there is ever any you know regulatory scrutiny and focus i like to think it's a bit like a maths question and that's in school in that you might the, the regulator might not agree with your answer but you should get points for your working out but you can only get mm. points for your working out if you can show that you did some working out by by having that document trail there yeah, that make, that makes sense, um, and and just generally sort of having in in terms of the investigations we've dealt with, it, it, um, that that sort of analysis applies, I think, not just to data data privacy, but also to all of the other laws that we've we've been talking about, sort of state secrets and um, comfort, customer confidentiality. If there's sort of confidential information that might be um, handed over to a to a regulator, for example, just documenting it, so doing the analysis, recording it. 
um, sometimes putting in place protocols for uh, handling the data, collecting the data and the review, all um, uh, are good ways of focusing everybody's uh, minds on the issues and and um, mitigating the risks that, that are there. I think what, one thing that, Miriam, that a lot of people want to know is, you know, go, re- rewinding sort of 10 years ago, date, data privacy law was sort of always there, right? But in terms of investigations, it was it was maybe a little bit of a box ticking exercise, something that you need to sort of think about. But there was never really a high risk of enforcement. There wasn't as the, the, the laws around the world didn't really have much, much in terms of teeth. And certainly when an organization's backs against the wall with a, a you know serious allegation of wrongdoing, the likelihood of you know p- potential criminal actions against the, the company, regu- serious regulatory actions, Usually, um, the the risk of breaching data privacy laws was um, very secondary to the risk of um, uh, you know an adverse finding in in, in th- those potential proceedings. How has the landscape sort of changed with the advent of GDPR? I mean, you know, how, how likely is um, there to be a serious enforcement action in in this kind of context? Uh, good question. I mean, outrageous suggestion that data protection was ever a box ticking exercise only. Um, but uh, no, it's it's a very good point. And obviously, GDPR came with a big splash in 2018, you know, and the big splash was the possibility of huge fines, you know, 20 million euros or 4% of annual worldwide turnover now, 17.5 million pounds or 4% of annual worldwide turnover under the UK GDPR. And that was the splash. And that's what really focused people's attentions on ensuring, you know, strong and comprehensive, robust compliance regimes within organisations. Now, four years down the line, have we seen that huge enforcement? Not so much. Starting to see some biggish enforcement now, but that's four years down the line and certainly not in the context of investigations. So I think the cynic in me would say there are probably organizations who are thinking oh actually maybe we can revert back to the good old ways and that we don't need to worry about this anymore obviously that would not be my advice or my recommendation but I think you know as I said GDPR doesn't say no to anything it doesn't say yes and it doesn't say no it requires guardrails to be put in place and as I just said it requires organizations to really think about what they're doing and if they do that then in most cases they probably do come out with the right answer and you mentioned you know for an organization the possibility of serious regulatory actions fines that kind of thing when I talk about that legitimate interest assessment that is absolutely on one side of the balancing on the scales you know that is the organization's legitimate interest in doing this because there's a real risk possible risk to the organization if they don't you're balancing that against risk to the rights and freedoms of the individuals but you also individuals can't behind behind their own wrongdoing in that respect you know because obviously these investigations could could result in you know potential negative consequences for the individuals but if that's as a result of their own wrongdoing then that doesn't doesn't necessarily tip the scales that way so as I say I think it's more just making sure that you are going through the thought process and you mentioned Rob you know 
putting mitigations in place to mitigate data protection risk if if it's possible to do so. Um, I, th I think one thing you mentioned about, you know, the sort of regulatory, the investigations with a regulatory background, where I think it is still, it has perhaps changed slightly under GDPR, is this distinction between where you're being told by a regulator you have to do something versus a voluntary or regulator saying, we would really like you to do this, but you're not under a legal obligation, you're not being compelled to do it. And that's where I see the most concern around investigations with an organization being like, OK, we can't rely on legal obligation as our lawful basis. We want to do this because we don't want to annoy the regulator. But it, it, it puts an organization in a very difficult position of balancing all those various um, sort of aspects of legal compliance, etc. When when you're in that kind of voluntary area yeah. and that's yeah that's where i see i guess most of the data protection concerns yeah interesting and so i guess from a data protection standpoint sometimes it may be better to invite a regulator to use their compelled powers um rather than just providing voluntary disclosure um in certain circumstances it can be and it, it obviously it's very fact specific and depends on yeah. what's going on but the, i i've certainly been party to instances where it, have actually gone back and say, look, if you want this, it would be really good if you actually compelled us to give it to you yeah. rather than just said it would be nice to have. Yeah. Um, Ali mentioned earlier uh, WhatsApp and um, uh, this sort of brings us on to the whole issue of, of um, you know, in, uh, messaging and mobile phones. Um, you know, again, rewinding sort of 10 years ago, I think most people had or a lot of people in, in, in organizations had a sort of work issued BlackBerry with their emails and text messages. And it was a company issued device. And so when it came to investigations, it was relatively easy to say, OK, hand that over. We'll 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 take an image of that and review what's on there um, these days. The line seems so much more blurred for many organizations as they have bring your own device policies, um, even um, devices that are issued by the, the organization, by the employer. People will typically have, you know, their family photos, their banking app, personal banking apps, all of these kind of things. Yet there may be critical evidence um, for, for an investigation on that device. Um, how how do you deal with that situation where? Um, you, you're much likely to have much more likely to have pushback from the um, uh, the employee um, on data privacy grounds. Yet you really need to to get that information um, in order to be able to effectively um, conduct the investigation. Yeah, and I know that Steph will probably have have uh, something to add on this as well. But yeah, WhatsApp in particular, I think, is a real challenge at the moment. Um, Email used to be a challenge. Now times have moved on. WhatsApp is a real challenge. Um, not necessarily from a regulatory perspective, but I think perhaps more importantly from a cultural perspective in that most of us know that our work email is fair game these days. And yes, we still send personal emails every now and again. But like I think most of us probably do that. Or maybe I'm just saying this as a data protection lawyer. I think most of us do that in the knowledge that our employer might have access to those emails at some stage. WhatsApp, however, is just a totally different kettle of fish, I think, you know, and even if it's 
WhatsApp being used in the work context, the informality of it as a messaging service means that I think people don't people have a perhaps a higher expectation of privacy around it. And I think that makes it difficult when you add on to that or layer onto that the whole bring your own device piece and the fact that, you know, even if it's a company issued device, you're still holding it in your hand and you still potentially could delete stuff before you hand it over for the purpose of an investigation. I think it makes it incredibly difficult. And I I would say that I've started to see recently a number of organizations rowing back from bring your own device. And I think part of the reason for that, not saying it's the only reason, but part of the reason for that is because of these issues around segregating work stuff from personal stuff and you know putting those boundaries and you know particularly in the context of you might need to do investigations in the future it is it's just really difficult when you've got someone's personal device with informal personal type messaging applications downloaded onto it yeah and we've had um lots of issues with with uh investigations that have you know brought these issues to light um we, we've had investigations where uh, the employee has um you know deleted um whatsapp and it's very easy to delete whatsapps um even if that you know contains work work information yeah um we've uh we, we've had other situations where we do we tend to find that if it's a sort of cooperating employee a whistleblower or or someone like that they're more likely to uh, give you access to, um, to, to to those sort of messages and it's easier to sort of sit down with them and say right we, we're not interested in any of your private information we just want to look at the you know the uh, the data that may be relevant to, to the allegations that you've made um, and to sit next to them and go through it in a way that they feel comfortable with um, but certainly if you're sort of looking at the inverted commas suspects data it's just as a matter of practice, very difficult to get um, uh, and, and and to navigate those those kind of issues, um, which which, you know, m- makes it uh, from an investigation standpoint, just people conducting messages on WhatsApp <laughs> or using using WhatsApp for business related purposes um, is a is a real uh, is a real challenge. Yeah, and lots of organisations will have policies that say you must not use WhatsApp for business purposes. Yeah. But again, it's very difficult to enforce yeah. that. <laughs> um, and, and so, yeah, I think it presents real challenges. And I know, you know, organisations, I think, are starting to look at ways in which, you know, if it's a work device that they're issuing, that they are then storing a copy of all WhatsApp messages on their own servers. Um that has its own presents its own data protection issues around telling people, mm. telling the recipient of a WhatsApp message from someone at one organization that actually that's being stored elsewhere by the organization. So, yeah, I, I think there are there are many and multiple challenges um, with these kind of and you know, WhatsApp's the one at the moment. But in five years time, it will be a different messaging service um, with possibly a different set of challenges. But at the moment, certainly, I think WhatsApp uh, really it is is challenging from all yeah. perspectives <laughs> we could talk about this for for uh, another hour but um let's move on and steph um you're the um head of e discovery here at hsf so 
um, we, we've obviously we deal with you a lot in terms of um, the collection and review of data in in, in terms of uh, investigations. What are the sort of typical challenges that um, uh, investigations pose uh, in terms of collection co- collecting data? Um, yeah, well, say I could also data is my favourite topic, and I could happily talk about this for for hours. Um, but I think it's it's been interesting <clears throat> as as you've um, been talking, um, the words come up a lot about sort of that conflict of how you best collect what's in scope versus managing the the data privacy um, concerns and just managing the policies around it um, with data collection there is also a conflict from a technical perspective and in relation to data being stored now in so many different places there are so many different data sources that are in scope so as we said previously email was your safe bet that's what you pulled also from a privacy perspective email as Miriam has said has always been a fair game easy to pull from a mail server, happy days, we start to review. Um, That stopped being the case, I would say probably about 10, 12 years ago is when new sources started to creep in. And obviously, if we look at the where we are now, yes, the dreaded mobile phones and the dreaded WhatsApp are becoming a big challenge as are other just different ways that people choose to communicate, but also how companies are choosing to store their data and manage it. And what's interesting in terms of the challenge that we often come up against from a collection perspective now is that conflict between data not necessarily being easy to collect and nor should it be because companies are encouraged to have strict security policies in place. Data should be encrypted. Data should be hard to get to in a certain context, obviously, in terms of you know threats from, from hacking, breaches, that kind of thing. But then on the other hand, you have situations where an investigation, you want to get access to that data very quickly. You want to make sure that it's going to come in a clean format that you can process and review at speed. Um, and it can be quite difficult to manage. And obviously, there isn't a standardised way that data is stored. So depending on the type of corporation you're working with, they'll have their own policies in place. They'll have their own procedures. Um, and also, I think in the investigation space as well, depending on the nature of the investigation, and so particularly if you are dealing with, with whistleblowers or um, situations that are highly sensitive, it's not necessarily appropriate for your client to self-collect. You're going to want to get a third party involved. That then adds another layer of process, of procedure and potentially delay. Um, But if I think about where I tend to wax lyrical about about data um, before we move on to the topic of all the bells and whistles that you can use to analyze that data and get to the nitty gritty of what you want to look at. Um, The collection piece is so crucial because It's the start of your story. If we're trying to understand the story of somebody's data, I I often identify that people start looking at that story too late. They focus on it once the data has been collected. Right. What's in there? What do I need to find? I'm much more interested in understanding, well, how did we get this data in the first place? Where did it come from? How is it stored? How is it collected? What are the challenges we might face in terms of processing it? Because if your data isn't clean, in quotation marks, from a sort of collection perspective, you then hit a lot of bumps along the way in the other types of tech that you want to use. Um, And that's just talking about unstructured data. So your emails, your chat messages. um, And I know, Rob, one of the challenges you've often come up against and we've talked about is that's one challenge. Throw structured data in on top. And that's when the fun really starts, because you've got 
a multitude of different data sources that can't be handled in the same way. And is it becoming easier to sort of link all of these data sources together? Because to, to, to conduct an effective investigation, you really want to see everything at the same time, don't you? You want to see the emails, the WhatsApps, um, potentially the accounting data, possibly information from a procurement database about particular contracts. Is it, um, is it the case that we still have to look at those types of data separately or is it now becoming possible to, to, to be able to link them all together? I think it's, it, it's definitely shifted and certainly the way that the, the sort of software providers are moving is this goal of being able to have the goal is always to have everything sitting in in one place um in reality i think even with unstructured data that's still a challenge but certainly if i think well i've been doing this for far too long now to to fully remember what it used to be like in the good old days when it was just email data and hard copy but if i think about um there's always been some kind of challenge around some type of data needing to be handled separately. And back in the day, it was it was mobile phones. That was always and, and chat data, particularly trader chat, Bloomberg chat data that had to be handled separately and it had to be handled by a separate team. And it was different software and Back in the day, it was awful to review, you know, the, the imaging of a mobile phone, whilst it didn't store anywhere near as much data as a mobile phone can store now, you would typically get it exported out into an Excel spreadsheet and it would have to be handled completely separately from email and you'd have someone reviewing it as a separate source. Same with chat data, those big trader chat rooms that stay live, you know, permanently you'd be dumping a chat out into sort of 3000 pages of a word document and some poor souls having to sift through to find it but again it's completely separate from the rest of the data timeline that tech has now massively improved and if we whilst there are obviously still challenges with collecting that data the software has improved um, in the review platforms. For example, we use Relativity. You are now able to review your email data with your mobile phone data, with other chat data in the same platform. And it doesn't feel so disjointed as it used to. And the way that it looks on the screen is much easier for a reviewer to work through. Structured data hasn't quite got there yet. And I think there are a lot more challenges around trying to bring that in to the same place because by by the very nature of how that data is is handled the structured and the unstructured you're trying to fit two things together that shouldn't really mesh you know structured data i tend to say to people it is well tab a very much does go into slot b and it will not go anywhere else because it's structured data it's very organized particularly you know financial data from banking systems so in some ways it's very easy to handle you're trying to fit that into an environment where tab A doesn't ever go into slot B. Sometimes it goes into C, sometimes it's a circle, sometimes it's a square. And you're trying to merge it together. It's quite difficult. But things have definitely improved with some of the more experienced providers where whilst the two sets of data have to be handled separately, they are getting into a better place from a reporting perspective of trying to put those two things together. So if you're really trying to build a timeline, but I'm actually I'm interested to see how that progresses in the next sort of five to 10 years as the data changes as well, because that's the thing. You're always slightly behind. But I think that's the new sort of nut to try and crack, I think, in this space is how you bring those two types of data together. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see how that, you know, the, the developments in the next few years. 
Um, Ali, just, um, you know, from a, from a practical standpoint, I think we've all been here. Um, we, we start off an investigation. Um, you've maybe got sort of five or six custodians who, um, you know, people are interested in looking at their emails, for example. Um, and you do, you, you get together some search terms. You sort of work out the period you're looking at. It comes up with 10 million documents. How, how do you practically, um, you know, work through that to get to really the nuggets of information that you're looking for? The age old question and one that I know concern, rightly concerns clients a lot because you're faced often with so much data um, and trying to uh, basically get to the answer. And sometimes you're also trying to look for the absence of something to prove that something didn't happen or that it, your suspicion is a document doesn't exist. But, you know, what are the steps you should take to get comfort about around your method and then how can you use tech I suppose as much as possible to um, make the whole process as efficient as possible so you've mentioned date ranges and keyword searches that's absolute you know bread and butter how you kick off um, a review phase and try and refine the pool of documents as much as possible um, We've been trying to use um, AI and tech as much as possible. So things like predictive coding um, in in the context of reviews. But be interested in Steph's thoughts on this and how it will develop. But certainly some of the reviews I've been involved with, um, the, the success rate that we've had with um, predictive coding, for example, has been mixed. Um, I think it can be used as a sort of complementary tool um, within your armory, so to speak, of analysing the data. So first off, it can be quite good to get um, use analytics tools to understand, for example, um, are there sort of keywords or themes um, that appear in lots of documents? So that helps you then sort of whittle down, OK, well, are there certain custodians that have more or less of something? Does that help you to then refine the pool that you then prioritise for review? Then do you think about bringing in your predictive coding so you get your best reviewers who are most familiar with the case to look at a sample batch train up the tool um, and then what that does is is potentially enable you to um, f stagger your review um, and you try and use the AI to um, effectively help you get to the most relevant things more quickly um, and it, where you're looking for kind of very factual questions try, when you're trying to build up a story of what's happened I think those tools can be very helpful where for example a regulator has asked you a, a very conceptual question about um, things that have been done within an organization or you know whether things have been considered it can be tricky to use those tools but uh, no doubt things will continue to evolve perhaps as Steph is going <laughs> to enlighten me which will be great for clients you already get an a star ali for how you've just described how you how you best go through your technical process so well done um but no, it's um it, it's interesting i think that the your comment actually about the results of predictive coding coding being mixed is is the right answer and is actually the most honest one and it's important to manage expectations around how this tech works because 
it is sold often as a magic bullet. And, you know, we do hear and, and those stories are true. The stories of, oh, you know, we knocked our review set down by 90 percent. We found we found the smoking gun on day three rather than three months in. But again, to go back to my original point of why I love talking about data, um, it depends on the underlying data. And every data set is different. Each matter is different. The data has come from a different place, different infrastructure, different people. And it can be very easy to get frustrated in a way if you don't get the same results. But logically, you shouldn't expect the same results because you're dealing with a different data set and a different set of set of requirements. But I think the way actually that you've just described that you've used predictive coding as that sort of safety net or as a prioritization tool or as a quality control, those are absolute wins of how to use predictive coding. It doesn't just have to be used as the, oh, we got the machine to do most of the review and we were able to really reduce a set. Yes, that's one success factor, but it doesn't always have to be the one that you you go for. And I think with, again, looking at that comparison of, say, structured versus unstructured data, where AI is quite difficult to use in relation to an un unstructured data set is because you're dealing with nuance. Human beings all communicate in different ways. They operate in, in different ways. You've got different topics that you're looking for, different underlying themes. It's a fairly bold assumption to assume that a piece of software would be able to handle all of, all of those. And also you've got different people training the tool. To your point, you have the most experienced people who understand the case, but they all think differently and different people in different legal teams think differently. So you have you have to factor that in. And that's not to say that you shouldn't use use the tech. You absolutely should, because I'm still more of a fan of using that type of technology in conjunction with, say, the date filters and the keywords than just using keywords or date filtering, because that also comes with its own set of assumptions to say the number of um, associates I've turned white when I've said, well, how do you know your keywords are correct? And the sort of you see the blood slowly drain from their face as they realize, well, yeah, we're making a really bold assumption that our people have used these terms. They've used them in the context we want them to use them in and that we're really comfortable that this is going to pull together everything. And then you don't think about what you're not pulling in, whereas AI, by its very nature, will look at that broader set. But it's it's a balance, I guess, is what I'm saying. But also, again, it goes back to that point of where did my data come from? How has it been collected? How has it been treated before I've started to put all of this software on top? Because that will also massively impact your results is, is where that data has come from. Great. And just finally, Steph, where do you think we're going to be in, in 10 years time? Are we all going out of jobs and uh, computers <laughs> can do investigations uh, yes. without any human input? Well, that's what the um, the discovery conferences that I've been attending for the last 15 years have said every year is, you know, we're all lawyers are going to be replaced by robots. Um, no, I think I th it's a very interesting time, as it always is in, in terms of where things are going to go. As I say, my my focus, my interest, I guess, is partly on seeing where we do get to with the structured data side of things. But I think we also haven't yet fully seen the impact from a tech perspective of what those last few years have done in terms of everybody working remotely and everybody working differently. We saw a huge acceleration of companies moving their data into the cloud probably sooner than they would have done. People are just using um, data in very different ways now because we are all working in different ways. 
I think it's probably going to be another five years or so before we truly see the impact of that. And that will then massively change again, I think, what data is in scope for an investigation and how are we going to um, handle it. But um, I think the, the structured data one is an interesting one. I'm keen to see where that goes in the next few years. Great. Watch the space. Steph, Ali and Miriam, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, I think that's about all we've got time for, but very interesting discussion. And listeners, I hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time.